Welcome to the Amplifying Optimism in Education podcast, where we connect with educators from across the globe who are creating a better future for learning and educating now by implementing bold ideas and fostering a sense of curiosity, creativity, and possibility. We've got a lovely panel of guests today, and I'm just going to turn it right over, and I will turn it over to Pamela to get us started. So So I'm really excited about today's podcast. I asked Scott McLeod, one of the first people I asked to write a chapter, if he would write uh, a chapter, and he so kindly said yes, and I was so excited. And then Mike Dougherty was one of the interviewees, and when I realized he had already written a book, I asked him to write a chapter too. Scott, I'm just kind of thinking about that whole time that was remote emergency teaching, March to the end of the school year, and leaders, you were doing the Corona Chronicles, um, Coronavirus Chronicles, uh, you were working with school leaders. What were some of the important things that school leaders had to do then and did successfully? And what happened since? Have they done some of the same things or done things differently? Thanks, Pamela. Um, Yeah, so I had a chance to talk to 43 different schools for my Coronavirus Chronicles interviews. And I think because those interviews were conducted between March and June, um, they represent sort of early phases of pandemic response by school organizations. And so, you know, if you look at the chart that I threw into our book, you know, phase one was really focusing on basic access. How do we make sure that kids are being fed? How do we get computing devices and internet hotspots out to families? How do we intend to basic, you know, social, emotional and health needs, checking in with families, seeing if they're okay and so on. And then trying to figure out some sort of subsistence level learning where we can ensure that at least some very basic levels of enterprise learning are happening, right? Unfortunately for a lot of schools about all they could muster was sort of worksheet and homework packet like learning opportunities for kids. Uh, We saw a lot of kids that sort of decided pretty quickly that was disengaging and disappeared. They went dark on us. um, And some of them were still trying to find. Um, And for students who uh, didn't have internet access, we were running paper packets out in backpacks, dropping them off at school buses and trying to ramp up teachers with whatever tech skills they could to do some basic um, teaching transmission out to kids and hopefully getting some stuff back. Um, What I really hoped would happen at the end of that phase as we headed into summer and fall was that schools would take the summer to regroup and sort of re-examine how they did things, how they thought about things. And, you know, although we saw glimmers of deeper, more robust learning, what I called phase three in the diagram in the book, um, from a a, we saw glimmers of that in a few school systems in the spring. Most of them were still doing that more subsistence level learning that I talked about. And they really hope that over the summer, schools would retool themselves, reorient, get some new professional learning for educators and do something different this fall. Um, And then also use that time to look ahead and see how they would be better suited to be more adaptive and responsive um, for remote and blended learning, for access issues, for equity and social injustice issues, um, to redesign around some of the new skills that they gained and so on. And I think what happened instead was that we saw a lot of magical thinking about our ability to reopen face-to-face in schools all across the country. And it became a squandered opportunity. And the families that gave us grace in the spring because it was an emergency are no longer doing so this fall and are rightfully unhappy with many of the things that schools are doing this fall because they didn't take that time over the summer to reboot and readjust. So I've been talking too long. I'll stop there. <laughs> no, that was great. I, I think that that was really, and I've heard the same thing uh, anecdotally as I followed up with different people. I haven't done the research exactly, but I'm hearing some of the same things. Um, Mike, I'd like to ask you a similar question. Uh, when leaders and, and those that had to communicate to uh, school uh, stakeholders were forced into this you know, triage teaching, triage learning in March, April, May, and the, maybe June. Um, what was really important for them to convey and to communicate and, 
And then how have have those uh, things that they had to communicate changed or morphed? We know right now that in this school year that has started up, we've got schools opening and closing, physically opening and then closing, and then uh, some COVID uh, happens at the schools, and, and, and suddenly they're all remote learning, and then they decide, well, we're going to open up for just elementary. Uh, can you tell us about some of the communication techniques from back when um, we were in the early stages of the pandemic and now? Sure. I think initially the message was was more of one of not of hope, but of stay safe. You know what I mean? Like, I think the focus in March and April was we get it. This is a whole brand new world we haven't really lived in before. Um, you know, we just want to make sure that, that everybody can connect. We get that it's not going to be similar to what you're used to having on a day-to-day -day basis with your teacher, but we're all going to do our best. I think that was kind of the message is we'll do our best. I know um, I talked to a lot of school leaders who really weren't focused too much on grades anymore in that last few months. It was kind of like, you know what, if this kid was getting a B originally while he was in school, let's go ahead and just give him a B as long as he's connecting and trying. So I think that initial message was we're all in together. We're doing our best to Scott's point. I feel like it switched then over the summer. I feel like at least where I'm at um, a lot of the school districts around us did sit back and say, okay, what we did in the spring was okay because everybody understood what we were in, but we can't do the same thing in the fall. So um, I feel like now the, the fall communication has been way more about you know, here's our schedule. Here's what it's going to look like when your student connects. I mean, that was one of the big things we heard from parents was, I, I can't have 15 Zoom meetings randomly. I can't have a two o'clock Zoom meeting just pop up at 150. I need, to, my student needs a schedule. I need a schedule as a parent. Um, so I feel like a lot of the communication going forward has been, here's what learning should look like. Here's who to contact if you're having trouble with tech. Here's who to, trouble, who to contact if your student is having trouble engaging or connecting. Um, I, mean, I think the other thing that we're seeing is this big pull on social emotional and what it's looked like for students when they're not seeing their friends on a regular basis. Um, so again, I think the focus, and, and I know we were talking earlier, the other focus is what we've done to make school safe. So if you're coming in, here's what it's gonna look like. If you're staying home, here's what it's gonna look like. Um, if you're on the bus, what's that going to look like? It's a lot about, I guess, communication is a lot, a lot about what to expect when you're in, in school this year or when you're out of school this year, when you're at home. But what can you expect from teachers, from administrators, from bus drivers, et cetera? That's what the communication's kind of been focused on. How do you sort of pull that communication together to get that information out? And then also, how do you not completely overwhelm and confuse everyone? Yeah, Scott. Yeah, I think that's a big issue. And I know that, you know, one of the things that we heard uh, in the spring in particular from both families and educators was that they felt like the messages from the system were changing, you know, sometimes multiple times per day. Right, right. And a lot of that finger pointing went to administrators, but I think we also have to recognize that the administrators were reacting to lack of certainty and clarity from those above them, right? right? So, you know, Nothing like hearing story after story from principals that they spent two weeks working on whatever the latest crisis response plan was to then have the governor make a last minute announcement and, you know, upend everything. Um, so I think we have to recognize that, you know, the leaders who were responsible for the communication strategies were also operating in environments of uncertainty and lack of clarity. And they were doing the best they could given the space that they had. And I would say too, um, just thinking along those same same lines, Scott. The one of the things that I don't, I don't think I put it in the chapter, stressed it as much as I should have, is we took an approach, at least at our district, on making sure that building level communications and district level communications were both on the same page. So we didn't want one building sending something out that wasn't kind of aligned with the message. So um, I felt like we took a little bit of extra time planning those communications, making sure that what was going out was kind of all uh, synchronized. Because you're right, I, I did see districts where you'd get a, an email from a building that said one thing, and then a, a 
a building with a different grade had a whole different message about what they were doing. And it was like, wait a minute, you guys are on the same district. How are we not on the same page? So I think uh, just having that, that communication internally before any external communication goes out is huge. Yeah. And I think thing that Mike's, Mike brings up here is this notion of a centralized plan with um, some modifications depending on local context. You know, there was a number of school systems that basically left each school to figure it out on their own under the idea of decentralized, you know, local site-based decision-making. And that in a big district, for example, like Denver, turned out to be a complete disaster many of the times um, because like Mike said, every school was telling families something different. And if you were a family that had kids at multiple schools, you were rightfully confused as why you were getting conflicting messages from different buildings within the same system. Yeah, the interesting thing too is as you're talking about you know, schools and, and families have always had a need to cooperate and collaborate for the success of our students. And yet we're seeing that being tenfold in levels of importance right now. You know, previously it was like, okay, teachers, you're the experts, you know, you just do what you do from, you know, 8, 8.30, whatever, till 3, 3.30, whatever your school days are. And you're in charge now, but now the fact that the parents have to be here for the, to support the virtual learning and understand what's happening in, in the schools and understand what the expectations are, you know, there's a lot of changing expectations, I'd say. And, you know, I'm curious what you've noticed. Um, we can start with Mike in terms of when you're communicating with the, the schools. And, and it, as you talked about, sometimes it's kind of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You know, you can't talk about what the, the curriculum is until you actually have what the setup is, what the actual days are going to look like, what the schedule is going to look like, how, how you submit things online. So I'm curious, how have you noticed schools and parents and teachers and students adjusting to these changing uh, expectations and, and, and goals that are required of the schools at this time? I think that's probably one of the biggest challenges is just is just making that adjustment. I can speak uh, for myself, as I mentioned, I've been in quarantine the past few weeks with my children. So I have been living that I have been the one, you know, reaching out to to schools and kind of working through that. Um, it's it's difficult, um, as kind of as you mentioned first, um, this whole idea of um, always needing that that two way communication you know, for the longest time, it's really been one way in the sense that it's been the school district just pushing information out. Um, so I know I mentioned in the book that you've got to kind of shift more toward that conversational mode. Um, but I also think about, I'm all over the board here. Sorry, sorry, Josh, I'm all over the board. But I also think a little bit about how social media has played into this to where, you know, if you're not communicating well with your parents, with your students, where are they going to go? Most parents are going right to Facebook. So then all of a sudden, you've got this whole second set conversation going on that you're no longer even in control of. So from the school side, I think it's really important to work with your teachers, make sure that they know what information they should be communicating to their families. You know, again, we talk about, I talked about, you know, the building being on the same page as the district. Well, then as a principal, talking to your teacher saying, okay, these are the things you need to make sure that every parent knows, you know, what to do if they have a tech problem, who to contact if, um, if they can't get on that Zoom meeting or if they're not seeing a worksheet, kind of where to go. Um, and if you're not, again, it's going to end up on social media where it, it can get a little crazy. Um, so I think I got to the end of the question in a roundabout kind of way, um, but you, there are a lot of things kind of popped in my head as we spoke there. Yeah, great. And Scott, I'm curious what you saw in terms of from that leadership level too. As as you talked about, you know, there are so many competing priorities. How do you deal with those competing priorities and the expectations and expressing what those changing expectations are? Yeah, I think a couple things. Uh, one is uh, the organizations that seem to do best uh, in the spring and continue to do best this fall are the ones that are organizing the communication strategies and their leadership behaviors and the support structures around organizational values and are very clear about why they're doing that. So it doesn't seem like they're just making decisions based on personal whim, for example. They're rooting those decisions in who we are as a school system, 
what we're all about, what we're trying to make happen for kids and families. And they're constantly referencing that in very explicit ways in uh, regard to their own decision making. We made this decision because it honors our value of fill in the blank, right? And that seems to be working very well for those institutions because everybody in the community understands very clearly why decisions are being made. Even when they don't always agree with them, they at least understand what they're rooted in. So that seems to be helping. Um, I think some kind of um, scheduled communication. So for example, if, if I know as a parent that I'm gonna hear from the principal or superintendent every Friday or every Monday morning or whatever, right? And I know that that's when the next communication is coming out, then I don't have to worry about all the stuff that happens during the week and trying to handle the ebb and flow of all the misinformation that's popped up and the you know, um, decision-making that varies back and forth between the politicians and the school officials, whatever. Like I just like, somebody's gonna make sense of it all for me next Monday and I can just count on that. And that seems to be a decent strategy too. I'll also, uh, I noted with joy Mike's reference to these Facebook groups that parents have made. Um, I've been long fascinated with sort of um, the blogs and Twitter accounts and Facebook groups and so on that parents and community members have made that sort of push back on the school system in their local area, either gently or not so gently. And I think that in the long run, those collective conversations about where we want our local schools to be are a good thing. But in the short term, particularly during a crisis, that can be a hot mess. And so um, I think school administrators have to think really carefully about how they engage with those spaces and making sure that they're trying to combat the misinformation that's often rife in those places. So, and to do that in a way that doesn't get them attacked. Because, you know, bottom line is, particularly during the pandemic right now, there's such a um, wide continuum of people's beliefs about what schools should be doing you know, and um, nobody can agree on exactly what the school system should be doing. And that causes a lot of argument and dissension and so on. So trying to be a island of stability within that conversation is probably a really good role for school leaders right now. Yeah, Scott, I think you hit it on the head uh, 100% with, you know, making your decisions based on the beliefs and the values of the district, because then even as, as that you know, gap widens, you can always go back to, you know, <clears throat> we believe X and this is why we're doing it. So this is, this is what we've all agreed upon. Even before the pandemic, this is, this is what makes our school, our school. These are our values. These are why we're making those decisions. So I a hundred percent agree with you on that. Yeah. And our values get tested in times of stress, right? So it really forces us to look really hard at how deeply held are those values and belief systems and what are we willing to do to uphold them, um, even in the face of others who want us to uh, walk away from them. You know, anecdotally, we found out that uh, online learning didn't really happen in March, April, and May and June. Really, triage teaching, remote emergency teaching happened. It wasn't the best use of online learning. A lot of the teachers weren't even familiar with the tools because they had not been exposed to them before. But now we're in the next school year. We're in the 2020 to 2021 school year. And I'm going to ask both of you, based on your experience being close to schools and Mike in a school and, and Scott working all the time with schools, has online learning when during that crisis mode has it put a bad taste in the mouth of some of the schools or districts uh, do you think they're going to be moving forward um, in the future do you think what we're doing now is going to stick or uh, are some going to go back to the other way once uh, vaccines and uh, become prevalent in this virus's history so it's a great question. Um, I, the, did, did online learning put a bad taste in your mouth? It's such, an, it's such, a, it's such a great question. Um, I think it may have originally um, more for, in my opinion, more for the teachers than it did for the students. Um, I think a lot of teachers, as you mentioned, just had not had the training, weren't prepared. But I think going forward, 
I think we're going to see some form of online learning stick stick around in some way, shape, or form. Um, I know that there are students in school districts that are succeeding in this remote environment, and it's going very well for them. So it's hard to think about, okay, do I have to bring them back in? If they're able to stay engaged and they're getting their classwork done and they're hitting all the standards and they're doing well in a remote environment, maybe we don't necessarily have to bring all those kids in. Maybe there's a model where they're only in half day for, you know, or, or maybe they come in two days a week or every other week or some other. So I think it's going to open a lot of doors. And I think there are going to be some districts that uh, capitalize on this. I think others will go back to how it was. I think there are districts that are just like, I am doing this to get through it. But when, when the vaccine is here and we can go back to what traditional schools always look like, we're going to go back. But I, I think it'll stick around. Um, I think you'll see uh, a, a lot of districts figure out ways in which they can uh, use the tools they've learned. Like I think about Screencastify and Zoom and how, uh, like we had a snow day the other last week and our district didn't call a calamity day. We called a remote learning day and teachers switched to the remote learning schedule. Kids hopped on their Zoom meetings and we just went about our business. So I do think we'll see some changes. Um, I do think there will be some positives that come out of it. Um, maybe not all the positives we want, but I think there will be some. I think we have to look at this at several different levels, Pamela, as we think about your question. Um, one of them is sort of the individual educator level. And bottom line is we're not going to unlearn the skills that we've gained over the last nine months. Uh, so I think we'll see a lot of individual teachers who will find uh, lots of interesting ways to continue to integrate technology into their day-to-day -day classroom instruction, uh, simply because they have new tools in their toolbox and new skill sets that they didn't have before. And they see what the advantages and affordances of those are. And they're not going to just walk away from those. Uh, even when we go back to face-to-face, -to -face. they'll find creative ways to blend those into what they do. Um, I think the bigger question, and this sort of references Mike's note about snow days, right? Is that, what will we do at the organizational level to restructure around these possibilities? You know, most traditional school systems have been premised for, you know, decades, if not centuries on a face-to-face -face model. Um, so are we just gonna tweak around the edges, i.e. we're gonna replace snow days with remote learning days? Or are we gonna really create alternative learning structures where we play around with daily schedules and calendars and so on. And we've had a lot of individual schools, particularly in the charter school space, that have been willing to do that, right? So we have a lot of blended learning models. You know, Christensen and Horn have been sharing those with us for a long time now. But most traditional schools have not been willing to create those different structures. They've still forced every kid to show up every day for all eight periods or whatever, right? Instead of recognizing that we could put tracks of kids or groups of kids on different schedules during the day, during the week, during the month, during the school year and so on. And the technology makes that happen. So we will see um, how willing school systems are, particularly larger systems are, to create multiple tracks or pathways or modalities um, in which kids can learn in different blended models, much like we've seen in, in the charter school space of some of these innovative project and group-based learning locations. I think there's a third question, which you, uh, a third level, which you didn't really ask about Pamela, but I wanna highlight here, which is what kind of learning are we trying to make happen? So we can play around with all the tools we want at the individual teacher level, and we can play around with time schedule time structures and delivery structures at the organizational level, but if it's all still low-level learning, then who cares, right? And I think the power of technology for me is its ability to empower students as learners and as active agents who direct what they do and to do some really interesting and meaningful and authentic and powerful work. And we have not seen much of that in most school systems. We have still seen basic delivery of lower level factual recall and procedural regurgitation, regardless of the structure or delivery modality, right? And, and for somebody who cares a lot about deeper learning, I'm interested in that third level question, which is when do we re-examine the kind of learning we want from kids and recognize that these technologies and these time structures allow us to do something different, not just from a logistics standpoint of 
letting kids come in two days a week, but in terms of the kind of learning they're able to do. And I think that's a much bigger and important question. Yeah, I um, just as you were talking, Scott, and sorry to interrupt you there, Mike, hop in, but I, I was just thinking about the episode of the Coronavirus Chronicles with the, uh, I think it's the Bunch Middle School. I was listening to that this morning and just listening to how they were doing, uh, figuring out how to do robotics type work, programming type work, um, you know, obviously nowhere near how you do it in the classroom. And, you know, you got to kind of do some things for the kids in that context that the kids can't do. But it was just, um, it was a really cool example of like, we've got all this time. And it was really neat to hear. I think it was the tech coordinator speaking on that episode. It was the last one you did back in July, episode 43, for those that want to check it out. Um, You know, if you want to get ideas for your for you know, listeners, if you want to get ideas for your school, you've got all these episodes. But um, I guess the question I wanted to ask is, you know, how how do you pace and lead uh, a group of teachers through this high, this these phases, these stages of just you know the low level stuff to the higher level stuff at the same time as people might be crashing and burning as, as the head of the school, you might be crashing and burning. How do you motivate without overwhelming? Um, is kind of, I think, kind of what I'm curious about. Mike, you want to take that first? Nope. I was going to let you touch that. I do want to swing back to the other point in a minute, yeah. but uh, let's stay on this one. And then we'll circle back to just one thought I had uh, after it's all said and done. Sounds good. It's a round table for a reason. We'll go around. <laughs> No, it's all good. Um, I think, you know, much like students, we have to uh, personalize our approaches with our educators, right? We have the bunch who was already tech savvy before the pandemic hit. They were already maybe doing some interesting things with kids. They're ready to take some next steps and evolve in some new directions and do some, you know, maybe some more robust learning. And they're willing to think about some things because they understand how the tools can work. Then down on the other hand, you had your uh, techno-skeptics who were pretty hesitant about technology. They only use it when they were forced to. Their learning curve is at a very different level right now. Like we would never expect that group to get up to where, you know, the first one was. Um, And so I think we have to identify sort of clusters of educators within the building and say, what are they interested in? What are they ready for? What are they capable of doing? And then personalize our leadership approaches and our support structures for each of those clusters. That's a very different approach than sort of the one-size-fits-all PD model that most schools do, right? Um, But that's where we're going to get the biggest bang. Yeah, I would agree 100% with that, Scott, especially with um, tech coaches nowadays. You know, if your district is lucky enough to have one, having somebody who really can uh, kind of assess everybody, really kind of put them into those buckets and really start developing plans that uh, make more sense for each group. Um, and I always think about too, you know, so celebrating the success of each one of those groups. So something that, you know, your techno skeptics, somebody does something really good in that group, even though it's not great on the grand scheme of things, if it's good for that group, it's still worth celebrating. Um, so to your point, Michael, just as, as, uh, everyone's burnout and collapsing, how do we push forward at the same time without, uh, without burning everybody out? It's tough. You know, that's what I hear constantly from teachers in our building is um, this is a lot. You know, they're not it's not just the remote teaching and, you know, having some kids in class, having some kids at home. They're also uh, they have safety concerns. You know, they have family concerns. I mean, it is a lot. So I, I think how I would answer that is very carefully. You know, we just you know, right now, I think it's a walk. But once the vaccine hits and, and things begin to shift a little bit back toward normal, is when we can really start having those conversations. I was wondering if uh, the both of you, from again, from your experience in schools um, and working in schools and working with schools, can say a little bit about parents as stakeholders. Their role has changed with remote learning. Um, some of them are out of jobs. Uh, they may have been out through this whole time. Uh, sometimes, uh, apparently, some of this is really fall- falling on the moms, for instance, uh, because sometimes the, the dad is keeping his job and the mom is quitting her job. Uh, do you have uh, you know, insight into 
what is going on with parents and how they're being brought in by leaders and in terms of communication and what is changing for the parent role uh, in from the uh, pandemic um, experience we've had? It's difficult. So as parents and stakeholders, I, I keep thinking back to my own experiences and just the things that I've been asked to do. But I'm also thinking as, as I kind of answer this question about you know, how many times parents have contacted me about issues, um, you know, tech issues, um, connection issues, things like that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, as Mike said, it's been an extraordinary difficult time um, because parents are also not only trying to figure out how to handle their own jobs and their own employment uh, requirements, but then turn around and be the at-home uh, teachers or facilitators of their own children. Uh, that becomes particularly fun when you have multiple children uh, who are different ages, working on different subjects, and all kinds of complex issues arise, right? Like, for example, like, yes, we have a computer or two in the house, but we don't have enough for every family member who all needs it at the same time. Um, or yes, we thought we had decent internet bandwidth and now we don't. Um, or how am I supposed to advise my third grader on this, my fifth grader on this, and my ninth grader on this all simultaneously within, you know, the two hours I have um, after dinner before we all collapse in exhaustion and start again the next day. You know, like there's all this stuff that's going on. I think, you know, as leaders, we have to keep acknowledging that this is a difficult time for everybody. You know, if we're leading with an ethic of care, if we're leading with an orientation towards grace, um, I think the part that's being that's been very dismaying for me is seeing where those partnerships and those dialogues have broken down, right? Parents who are pointing the blame directly at teachers because their kid isn't learning something this fall. Um, or school systems that are doing really dumb stuff like assigning 12 assignments over winter break so that kids can stay on track. And, you know, it's like this is all these sort of decision points and instances where you can tell that the relationship between the system, the school system and the parent has broken down in some way. And you're seeing this anger and frustration bubble up on both sides. I mean, I think, you know, there's no easy solution to that other than to just keep talking with our families about what do they need, what's most important for them, how do we balance competing priorities, how do we lead with an ethic of care, and so on. Now, unfortunately, we see at least some places around the country that are really struggling to do that well. Well, I think that's a great point. I think um, going back and constantly bringing your community into those conversations you know, um, I know <clears throat> as we worked on our plan this year for what what school would look like in the fall, you know, we developed the plan internally. We spoke with teachers. We spoke with principals. We spoke, we spoke as administrators. But then we went out to the community and said, here's what we're thinking. Here's how we plan to roll it out. You know, and we got all that feedback. Okay, what happens if um, both parents are working? How am I supposed to get my student to school based on this particular transportation diagram? Or... How are they going to get help or where can, is there a daycare option? So, so having those conversations constantly with your community, I think is huge. Um, again, I know we already spoke about the social media groups, but I think there are nuggets to be had there where, you know, if you're watching those conversations, you might be hearing the things, things that parents aren't necessarily saying directly to your face, but they are saying online. So you're seeing those frustrations, um, I know, like I know we mentioned the schedule earlier, but I know when we talked to our parents in the spring, that was their big thing was that the lack of a true schedule made remote or uh, emergency learning, whatever term we want to use, made it difficult. So having that schedule. So that was one of the things we learned. So I think, again, having those conversations and keeping them in the loop is huge. And I wanted to circle back real quick since we're talking about parents and the whole idea of what might change. You know, I mentioned that remote uh, learning was working really well for some students. I'm expecting parents throughout the country to push schools to go this route. So it's not just going to be, you know, the school deciding, should we do this or should we not do this? I think you're going to see parents, you know, really advocating for their kids saying, hey, that hybrid model we had for 2021 was very effective for my family. Why can't we keep it? What's preventing us from keeping it? You were able to do it before. Why can't we do it going forward? So I do think that we're going to see, I, I think parents are going to play a big role in some districts, not in every district, but in some districts on, on what things look like going forward. You know, not only do our parents getting a window into what hybrid learning 
looks like, but they're also just getting uh, complete transparency into what everything in school looks like. And, you know, it's like the parent who had, you know, who sees their kids getting all these assignments, being overwhelmed and exhausted. Well, that's what's been happening maybe for five years. They just haven't seen it. And maybe they were wondering what's been happening at school. And so I think it's not just about a window into hybrid learning and wanting more, but also like the whole, the whole, the whole thing of school is just right in parents' faces every day as it's never happened before. Good, bad, and ugly, right? So, um, I, and again, I, I tend to be a pretty big believer in transparency. I think that if schools and school systems are meant to serve their communities, uh, openness and honesty and transparency about what's happening is good because it builds conditions of trust. Um, but uh, parents are also seeing things that they didn't know occurred. Like you said, the overwhelming number of assignments um, even when your kid is struggling, right, has come closer to the forefront than it was in the past. Um, the way certain teachers talk to their kids um, has also become very apparent because now instead of being hidden behind the classroom door, it's beaming into your house through the Zoom camera <laughs> and so on. And so uh, I think these we have opportunities to get better and to, and to rethink things and to have parents' eyes on what we do um, and to genuinely welcome that input will in the long run make us better systems for the children and families that we serve. Uh, but there's going to be some pain points in those conversations and they're probably well-deserved. Well, I'm interested to see too how things like, you know, I know in my district, we've been talking a lot about the value of homework and um, you know, how much should we, should we really have? Should we have it at all? Should, um, you know, uh, assessments be able to be retaken? You know, I think as parents get a, you know, much more open view, like you said, Michael, into what's going on, um, I'm interested to see how their opinions on all this change. You know, we've always done homework because that's what we had when we were kids. So as parents, you're expecting your kids to have homework. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's uh, there's so, so much stuff that uh, is a lot of just drill and kill uh, Maybe we don't need this anymore. Maybe there are better ways to do this, you know? So again, I keep trying to look at the optimistic side of what could come out of all of this. I think we're going to have a wealth of parents who really do have a better understanding of, not a, not a, better, a better understanding of what they're able to see at least from school districts. I don't think that you really get a great understanding until you've really been in the mix. Um, but I think this really is going to push some of those conversations that low level learning work, we could sort of force students to be compliant when they were sitting in front of us in class. But now that students are home and they have that uh, physical or geographic distance from the school and the instructor, they have more ability to opt out. And a lot of kids are deciding, you know what, I'm gonna opt out because this is boring. <laughs> what are those next level goals and roles for schools that we should really be talking about now and should be our outcomes that we're working towards as we come out of this pandemic. Josh, I've, I've seen that in my own house. <clears throat> my third grader has come to me and said, why do I have to do this? I, I already understand it. And I'm like, well, unfortunately you have to do it because it's a sign. And she's like, but, but I, I, I already know all the answers. I, this is not like, I, like basically you're wasting my time. Like I, this is a concept I have mastered why do I need to do yet another worksheet <clears throat> just because maybe other kids in the class need to do this work? Do I have to do this work? So yeah, again, I, I, I would love to see this push that conversation. And those are all righteous questions and righteous conversations that need to be had. We'll see how many systems are actually willing to, you know, put those up for discussion. Um, but uh, circling all the way back to Michael's point about sort of the transparency of it all, right? Like we are seeing the gut level uh, inanity or uh, stupidity of much of what our children get assigned um, because it's coming into our house every single day. <laughs> yeah. So let me ask this question because if it's not just about, if it's not just about online learning and it's about moving the needle forward from a fundamental place of really educator training, 
you know, how do you, what are the strategies that aside from, you know, you know, different groups of sort of different levels of teachers, how do you then take those different groups and, and move them and, and elevate them to the next level during all of this and after? In my own work, I've focused on a couple of different levels of that issue. One is sort of the day-to-day instructional redesign process, right? So using tools like my four shifts protocol or ISTE standards for students uh, and teachers, just really talking about what kind of learning and teaching do we wanna make happen? And then how do we do that day-to-day redesign work in the instructional activities that we put in front of kids? that are aiming for something different than we have in the past, which is primarily content coverage and uh, trying to meet accountability mandates from the state or whatever, right? Um, I've been preaching since early summer that we need to be designing for high engagement this fall. Some systems took that up, most did not, and they have been paying the price in terms of student learning outcomes. Um, And so I think having some really rich rock conversations with our educators about What kind of learning is going to keep our kids engaged and motivated during this difficult time? Um, And it's probably not pushing out more low-level content stuff, uh, right? And what does that mean for our own teaching? And then at the leadership level, of course, thinking about what are those behaviors and support structures and so on, the communication and messaging around it, the coaching supports, um, the time supports, and, and other strategies and techniques that sort of enable sort of the high engagement learning that we know our kids need from us right now. Um, So lots of different places to play. And of course, those are very contextual based on the school or system that you're embedded in. It looks very different in different places. Now I was struck over and over again by my conversations in the spring that certain schools pivoted really smoothly to triage teaching as Pamela called it, because they had certain structures in place. So for example, schools that were already high in student agency, their students had no trouble self-directing their work at home because they were used to self-directing their work at school, right? The schools that had made robust investments in technologies were able to seamlessly switch over in ways that other districts were not. And, you know, the places that had standard-based grading schemes in or competency-based education progressions that are used to just taking kids where they are and moving them forward, whatever that place is, we're not having conversations with those schools about learning loss because that's not a, even a concept for them, right? Like there's just schools that were better situated to manage all this in the future. And so we can see some of those intentional investments in earlier years that really have paid off in 2020. And this is bring. go ahead, Mike. Oh, I was just gonna add one thing from the tech side is that as we you know, start talking about these conversations, I, I always want to remind people to to use the tech tools that you have at your disposal to help guide some of these conversations. So um, <clears throat> I look at one particular app that I cannot think for the life of me of its name right now, but uh, we have it installed on all of our Chromebooks. And one of the things that it does is on a weekly basis as kids are using different applications, it has the kids rate the application one to three stars just to see how engaged they are. So then it takes that engagement data, and then we also take that data versus their scores on state and local assessments. So we're able to see what um, what apps are engaging and are actually driving our kids forward versus what apps are we, we paying for that essentially the kids don't like and they're making no difference. So it's one of those things where as we start thinking about all these different ways, I'm always going to throw the tech and there's so many technical tools out there and ways that that help kind of guide these conversations. It can help give you data points of nothing more as you begin to look at, you know, what what instructional design should look like. Yeah, I think that, you know, talking about the technology aspect of it, talking about the structures of it, talking about, as Scott was mentioning, the, the communications around these these rollouts and these ideas, it got me really thinking about some of these large paradigm shifts that we're in the midst of in terms of time, um, you know, teachers being at home and so being able to use their time differently and have breaks in between zoom meetings and actually be able to, you know, use the bathroom. Whereas in a school teachers don't have those types of luxuries and things like that, that we don't even think of right now. Um, So the shifts in in paradigms of time in work-life balance and in the roles of teaching and learning and what it's in service of and service and who it's in service for. And so it, it had me really 
questioning and I'm curious for your guys' take on how do we then say, because we now know what we can accomplish in shorter amounts of time with more engagement, how do we say and communicate this to the community of we're going to make this big shift that we're talking about to actually invest in our teachers to learn how to be more engaging, whether it's online or in person, to invest in our communication skills, to invest in our communities, and to really take the time to make these revolutionary shifts that will change education for the better across the board that we know now that we're seeing aspects of able to come to fruition as a result of this forced step back. How do we actually communicate that and provide the necessary tools and resources to make that shift? And is it possible, I guess? I mean, it's definitely possible. I mean, we just look at what we've seen under conditions of duress and stress in 2020. Um, we have done a lot of things that we didn't think were possible at the individual level, at the organizational level, and so on. I think the bigger question is, what is our willingness or intentionality around doing that purposefully in the years to come, right? So we have now realized that we can learn and teach uh, in different ways than we have in the past? Are we gonna take advantage of those new skill sets and affordances to create different structures for the kids and families that we serve? Um, we are learning, for example, that some kids uh, really struggle in online or blended learning modalities and we probably should have them face-to-face. -face. We have other kids who are thriving and surviving in uniquely different ways um, in these new environments. The question for us is, are we going to create those different pathways and structures that allow that to happen? Because that's what's best for kids, particularly in larger systems where we have large enough numbers of schools and teachers to try different structures, right? Uh, we are learning that, um, that these blended modalities and hybrid modalities are not only good for kids and families, or at least some of them, but also are good for at least some of our staff, right? We have a number of staff who would dearly love to teach part-time, to teach in blended or hybrid modalities, to teach across geographic locations rather than being pinned to one individual school each day, right? All day, you know, uh, we can, I am interested in a phase of retirement, but I still would love to teach two or three classes, you know, a day or a week, you know, whatever, right? Like we're finding that it's good for staff as well, as you mentioned us, which I think is important. And again, it's all just going to come down to leadership and the willingness to actually rethink school structures and move us forward to create differentiated pathways and supports, you know, for both students and staff that would really benefit from them. We'll see who's brave enough to make it work. Yeah, I do think this has opened people's eyes to what's possible. I think that there's kind of there was always that barrier of, well, that just wouldn't work. You couldn't do that. Like the kids wouldn't pay attention or they wouldn't connect or parents wouldn't support that. And I think you're seeing, okay, hey, you know what? It is workable. Yes, there are some tweaks that need to be made. It's not perfect by any means, but this is this is a model that that can work if it's done correctly. So again, I'm just so hopeful that these conversations happen. My, you know, my hope is that my at least my thought is that because so many more parents have been exposed to this now. Uh, some of those barriers will begin to fall. You know, board members who used to think there's no way this would work. Uh, okay, now we know teachers who used to think, you know, really, this isn't going to work. Well, guess what? We're learning that it, it can when it's done correctly. So, again, uh, my fear is that we'll fall back into the same old, same old. Um, you know, once 2020 is long gone from our memory, you know, we'll have the same, we could have the same conversation in five years and still be debating the same, you know, does homework matter? Um, can, should, should kids have to come to school every day? You know, um, there are those schools out there that are really trying different great things with time. And I tried to look it up. It's got, maybe, you know, the site, I was trying to find out what we were talking. Uh, the Bill and Linda Gates Foundation created a website that encouraged teachers to think and school leaders to think differently about time. I just can't find it right now. But uh, anybody who's listening, go out and search it up and you'll find it. It's a great resource just to get you thinking differently about, you know, how you could use time in school. I think there are some incredible lessons that we can learn from our project and inquiry based learning schools that exist all around the world. There are thousands of these schools now. Um, and what we seem to learn from them over and over again, and the research backs it up, 
is that um, when you let kids drive the learning and when you focus on deep conceptual understandings rather than shallow coverage of a mile-wide curriculum, um, that students learn not only more deeply, but also more relevantly. They find more meaning in their learning, which means that their engagement motivation goes up. And what's been fascinating to me is that even though these schools freely admit that they probably hit 50 to 60% of the content that a more traditional school would, because they're going deeply rather than broad and shallow, um, their students actually tend to do as well and often better on the standardized assessments of content coverage that we put in front of them. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> because uh, even though we haven't covered everything, and that's always the reason why educators say they can't go deep is because they have to move on. We've got to move on. We've got to cover this. Gotta move. And yet these kids who go deep actually do better on those tests of content coverage because they understand what they're learning rather than forgetting it a week and a half after they essentially covered it, right? Um, and so I think there's lots of lessons to be learned from those kinds of schools and those deeper learning networks of schools about how to set up different kinds of instructional uh, and institutional uh, learning teaching paradigms that really accomplish what you're talking about, Michael, but still address the accountability mandates that are you know, a political necessity right now. Yeah, that's the, that's the problem I hear that as you, as you talk there, Scott, is that I just hear a lot of teachers and school districts that are so afraid to kind of go down that road because those standardized tests and those scores mean so much to the community, to the district, to the parents, et cetera. So <clears throat> taking a different approach that might cause our scores to go down is a pretty scary, you know, uh, road for some people. And it's just, it's, it's a tough road to go down. It's not, an, it's not an easy road. You know what I mean? It's, it's, uh, I'm with you. I agree. It's just, I, I seen so many schools that are like, but we're doing, you know, according to the state, we're doing a great job. Right. So why should we change anything? Right. So we have some choices to make. We can focus on, learning that is engaging and meaningful and interesting to the learner, or we can focus on externally mandated assessments of low level uh, factual recall and procedures, right? That are uninteresting to kids. Um, and we have to make that choice um, at some level. And a lot of educators and systems have made the second choice, not the first one. What I'm saying is that when we make the emphasis, when we make the choice to do the first one, the second one takes care of itself. <laughs> and so we can actually have both. But as Mike said, if you haven't seen it, that's a leap of faith, right? And so, you know, I would encourage everybody to go visit some of these schools and see what they do. And they will tell you over and over again, our kids do just fine on those assessments. They're often doing, you know, they're one of the top schools in the entire state on those assessments, but we never ever think or talk about those assessments. What we're focused on is deep, rich, robust, meaningful learning. And it's awesome here, come see. How has your work shifted and are you thinking differently about your role? Uh, how will you seize this moment, do you think? So it's a great question. Um, so personally, how my work has shifted um, in the short term, in all honesty, uh, it's been a lot of remote support for parents at home. Um, you know, we were lucky enough to have gone one-to-one -one back in 2014, K-12, every student has a Chromebook. Um, the network infrastructure at the school district was built out wonderfully for one-to-one -one computing. But then when you send all these kids home with their devices and you're getting phone calls that, you know, Scott mentioned earlier, hey, we used to have what I thought was great internet. And I'm like, yeah, 20 megs when you've got uh, four kids doing remote learning, that's, that's not going to hold up. So the short-term conversation really has been um, me and, and my staff are just trying to support teachers in this time. You know what I mean? Uh, my tech coach is constantly uh, on call helping teachers when they're having issues in Zoom or in Meet or a kid not connecting. So again, short-term, really my focus has just been on making sure the students are all set and they're good to go. You know, going forward, though, it's then, you know, having those bigger conversations of what what this could look like, you know, um, if we um, if we didn't bring kids in every day, could we I mean, the district I, I work in is small enough. 
Is there a project? Could we put, you know, internet in downtown? Could we put some internet in, could our internet extend to the library? Could we offer them, you know, connections other places? Um, what other resources? I, I, I know, Pamela, you and I spoke about this before. My, the software that we're purchasing now is going through the roof because we're buying all sorts of new things. So kind of refocusing that conversation to say, okay, what tools make sense for us in this new model? What don't? Um, yes, yeah, so it's, it's a lot of that. Um, kind of looking forward to uh, having those conversations with teachers and parents and really sitting down with them and saying, okay, what have we learned? Um, what haven't we learned? Um, and where can we kind of go from here? Now, Pamela, for me, I'm incredibly privileged as a professor to have both uh, time flexibility and autonomy and geographic flexibility and autonomy. I can basically pick what I work on and, and where I do that work. Um, so, you know, if I needed to come to campus, I would come to campus. If I needed to go out and work with the school, I'd go out and work with the school. I need to teach class. I could either show up face-to-face, -face, we could do it remote, whatever, right? So for me, my day-to-day -day flow actually hasn't altered that much, um, except that I can't go places <laughs> that I used to go. You know, we're all in that boat, right? Um, so, you know, my face-to-face -face principal licensure cohorts have gone fully online, for example. Um, uh, the professional learning work that I do with school districts all around the world has moved from occasionally flying me out to Massachusetts or Texas to trying to figure out ways to do that remotely with, you know, 400 educators in Virginia, you know, that kind of work, right? I think for me, what's, what I've been trying to really think hard about over the last nine months or so is how do I use my online platforms, particularly the, the really visible ones like Twitter and my blog, um, and the creative ability that we have with these tools to create new things, right? So I'm thinking about the Coronavirus Chronicles series, um, the Silver Lining for Learning initiative that I started with Yang Zhao and Chris Didi and Pooja Mishra and Kurt Bonk, um, the new podcast that I'm probably gonna start up in the spring around instructional redesign, right? Like trying to create new support structures um, that can serve people in different ways that don't require face-to-face -face meetings. Um, that's, but still continue to work and also allow me to tap into my, you know, creative side where I get to make and do and author um, in ways that, uh, you know, you know, sing to my heart um, as opposed to doing the ordinary grunt work of, you know, Professor Administrivia. So, Pema, I did have one more thought as we were talking there as I was listening to Scott. You know, Pema, you mentioned that this being kind of our time in tech um, I think I would say to, to those listening out there, you know, if you're in the tech director role or the CTO role and your district hasn't heavily relied on you during this time, that to me would be a big wake-up call that uh, either you need to up your game or you need to find yourself another district. Because um, I have talked to some school districts and some tech directors who, you know, as they're talking about all these plans and all this stuff that's happening, the tech person, the person responsible for all this technology isn't even in the conversation. Um, and I, I see you shaking your head. I agree 100%. But if you're, if you're in a school district where your role as an educational technology leader isn't valued, uh, again, I'm not saying up and leave, but uh, you really need to kind of revamp that or have a conversation at least with your leadership to say, hey, you know, this uh, I should have been a, a, a big piece of this, you know, of all of this, not just an afterthought. So just a, a thought there. How do we bring students to the table and have them be the ones that say, hey, I don't want to go back in person or, hey, I love the hybrid model or, hey, I only need to be in person because I can't focus when I'm here. How do we have their voices be a part of this so that we can actually collaborate on what would work well long term for our students as well? Well, we first do that by sending really strong messages of receptivity to student voice and family voice. Um, and some school systems are better at that than others, right? Some school systems basically just dictate to families what they're going to get, and others are really good at listening. Um, and the ones that are really good at listening and creating opportunities to be informed by the people that they're allegedly serving are going to do a much better job. Um, and then, of course, the question will become in terms of what we discussed before in terms of creativity and bravery in terms of redesigning the system that we're all used to. I, you know, I always tell people that the biggest 
barrier to changing school um, is not resources or time or logistics or any of that. It's our deeply embedded mindsets of what school looks like, right? Um, if you say the word school to somebody in, in, in America, for example, or anywhere else, it brings up a whole host of images and feelings where people instantly have, you know, this cluster of, of ideas about this is what school is. And now what you're talking about is school isn't necessarily that anymore. It can be that, but it can also be A, B, C, or D, right? Um, and the question is, are we willing to talk about that? Yeah, I think you hit it on the head. I think listen, 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 listen. Know what questions to ask and listen. Sorry, there's a dog. Um, knowing what questions to ask, but then really just taking the time to listen to the kids. Uh, the students have so much uh, insight. I mean, they're the ones, as you said, Josh, they're the ones living this. They're the ones going through it. Um, you know, let them help, help guide that conversation. Um, it's key. It's the, it's the really, it's the only key. I am struck by how many tech coaches have basically said over the last nine months, see, <laughs> like, this is what I've been talking about for the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years, right? Like, if only you all had listened, we would be in so much better shape. And, you know, like, it's funny, but it's also like my empathy just goes out to them. Like, they have been trying to uh, help the disinterested <laughs> for a really long time. And I'm just hoping that we now all see the value of that IT support work, that instructional technology coaching work, and so on. Because boy, have we needed it in 2020. And to just, you know, see all these tech coaches looking around and be like, yes, finally, somebody sees my worth. And yes, now you're coming to me for help? Where have you been? <laughs> right? Um, and so we need to do a better job by these people in our systems. And that includes higher ed, not just K-12. So one of the things that um, I think made, and Oscar, you made the point earlier about how those schools that invested heavily in technology made that transition seamlessly. One of the things in our district that was so immensely helpful is <clears throat> way back once we went one-to-one, -one, uh, we had a big conversation about the skill set that we wanted kids to have when they walked out of school. So when they, when they graduated from our district, these are the skills we want them to have. And we wanted to make sure that all of our teaching staff had those same school skills. So we actually uh, required all of our teachers to get level one Google certified. Um, first district in the country to pull that off. Um, it was a big road to go down. But I'll tell you, five years later, with all of them getting recertified, you know, a lot of those tools, a lot of those things that people were trying to pick up on the fly had just become ingrained in what we do. Um, and we couldn't have had, we would not have been able to do that with our, we have such a phenomenal tech coach where I'm at. I mean, she's incredible. You know, her PD is, is really personalized and just being able to do that. Like, again, this is something they've been preaching forever and to see it finally hit has been amazing. You know, where can people find out more about your work? Uh, what are some things, you know, any parting words or anything you want uh, folks to know about uh, that you're up to? Uh, we can start, Either Scott or Mike, who would like to go first? Scott, perhaps? All right, let's do it. Scott, tell us where people can learn more about you. Yeah, so I can be found at dangerouslyirrelevant.org uh, or on Twitter uh, at McLeod, just M-C-L-E-O-D. Um, and then you'll find all my other online spaces through one of those probably. <laughs> um, you might want to wait until after uh, January 20th to follow me on Twitter when I dial back the political content, just saying. Um, <laughs> But uh, you can find me pretty easily. Um, I think, you know, since you gave me the opportunity to offer some closing words, mm -hmm. um, I've been doing a lot of reading on crisis leadership over the last nine months. And I yeah, think and you taught a course on it, too, over the summer. Yes, I did. It was yeah. fascinating um, because we had people from other societal sectors like the hospitality industry or the fine arts or the military talk mm -hmm. to us about crisis leadership. Wow. I read uh, something from these um, scholars in the Netherlands that has just been sitting with me ever since. And I, and I think I will leave it to sit with all of our listeners as we close out today. Um, so their names are Boyne and Hart. And they said that um, 
you know, there are a lot of people that are hoping that the pandemic will radically reshape certain elements of the school system once we return back to whatever the new normal is. Um, and that, you know, although we're all hopeful that some of these silver linings will actually occur, that there are actually some inherent tensions between crisis management and reform leadership. Uh, because during a crisis, leaders are trying to minimize the damage, alleviate the pain, and restore order, which is the exact opposite of trying to disrupt the system and trying to make new changes, right, and move it in a new direction. And that's been sitting with me ever since. Yes, I really want school systems to transform themselves into something differently and, and use this, this pandemic as sort of like a cocoon to emerge in a new form. And I'm also cognizant that that's going to be a really big ask at the local level, right? Can you imagine being a school leader who just said, hey, I know your lives have been completely disrupted for the last nine to 15 months. And now what I want you to think about is completely disrupting what we do and creating a new system instead. And there's going to be a whole lot of people who are going to say like, no, thank you. Can we just go back to what it was, right? Because, and that's what you've been doing as a leader. You've been trying to preserve the core of the enterprise for the last 15 months. And now you want more upheaval. That's what you're asking us to do as families and educators. And that idea, that tension has been sitting with me ever since, right? Like we know that we should probably evolve and emerge from this pandemic in some new spaces, but that is gonna be a really hard ask. And that's gonna be some really courageous leadership and some skilled leaders that are able to pull that off. And Mike, where can people learn more about you, find out about your work, any um, closing words you'd like to share with our listeners? Sure. Uh, you can find more about me at uh, my website is more than a tech. Um, same thing on Twitter, more than a tech.com. Um, really my work uh, most recently, I've spent a lot of time um, kind of trying to help technology directors kind of up the game. Um, I feel like th there are a lot of folks out there who um, are overlooked or um, just don't know where to go for professional leadership when it comes to being a CTO in education. Um, so I actually just published a book two weeks ago called Certified uh, EdTech Leadership, um, really kind of all about following ISTE and COSIN's standards and what that looks like in terms of technology leadership. So, um, oh, yeah, Pamela's holding it up. Um, so yeah, uh, definitely if you're a CTO, you have questions about anything uh, related to that. I also teach a course um, both in the spring and the fall, um, kind of walking people to get uh, certified through COSIN. Um, so I'm happy to touch base with you on that. Um, really parting thoughts. Uh, yeah, I think Scott really hit it on the head in terms of this whole idea of what the shift happened um, and kind of how it's contrary on both sides. Um, I think I would just say with, you know, I feel like we're nearing the, the we're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, I think I would tell every educator out there just to, you know, stay strong. We're almost there. You're almost through this school year. You know, I know that next year will probably not be the same as what it's always been, but, but we're getting there. You know, uh, I hope that uh, they all take time over winter. I know this won't air until, till January, but I hope they take time over the winter break to just kind of recenter, um, you know, de-stress, have some good family time and, and get through those last few months and then look forward to what they can do in the, you know, using all these tools, all the things they've learned over these last nine months to really make a difference kind of going forward. Awesome. Thank you so much, guys. This was just a delight, a wonderful conversation and inspiring, thought provoking, uh, encouraging. Uh, so thank you to both of you and to Pamela, as always, for mm -hmm. this being a part of this wonderful series and for being part of this terrific book, Like No Other School Year. Yeah, thank you for having us. Josh and I hope you enjoyed listening to this week's episode of Amplifying Optimism in Education. Please join us next week for another new episode in conversation with an innovative educator from around the world.